Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Art of Product podcast. I'm Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with my co-host with the co-most, Derek Reimer. I like it. How you doing, Ben? Yeah, you into it? I'm good. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> I was thinking maybe co-hoster with the moster. Yeah, possibly co-host work. with the mizost. Mizost, getting all gazangster. Yeah, totally. That's definitely me. <laughs> sure, people are going to write and be like, Derek, never say gazangster again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. People, people do that to me a lot. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hello. Hi. I have good news. I feel amazingly better than the last time we talked. Awesome. You look, uh, you yeah. look relaxed. I like it. I feel relaxed. Um, part of that, by the way, is that I did yoga this morning at 730. Aha. Uh-huh. That always helps. Which, yeah, it's what an amazing way to start a day. Yeah. Also, the weather's beautiful. And mm-hmm. I'm also just kind of settling in and getting accustomed to my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I would say I was like feeling real stressed last time we talked. Uh, and now I don't feel stressed. I'm getting kind of comfortable with like with, with what's going on. These are the these are the startup life ups and downs, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure, yeah. you know, maybe next week you'll be feeling down a little bit. But then the week after that, it'll be back up. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to somebody who does a similar thing yesterday. And I was like, yeah, that like that like stressed feeling is just kind of gone. He's like, it'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Don't expect it yeah. to be permanent, but relish in it while it's here, you know? Sure. Yeah, totally. True for most things. Yep. I have to keep reminding myself of this thing, which is that um, my brain is trapped in my body. And so <laughs> I, I can actually uh, affect my brain by doing things with my body. It's true. So yoga, what, what flavor of yoga did you do this morning? This was vinyasa flow. Nice. Yep. It was actually a great class. I've done a fair amount of yoga and I thought this, the teacher was really good. And also, this is the first time I went to this new studio, which is literally a block f- from my apartment. Nice. Yeah. So I had been meaning to try it for a long time and I finally got over there and it's like, oh man, like the thing that's incredibly close and convenient is also good. Yeah. That's that's always nice. I have a I have an epic coffee shop right down for me and an epic mm. uh, yoga studio. So, yeah. Wow, you're set. <laughs> Lots of boxes checked. This podcast that folks are listening to right now is uh, launching tomorrow, I guess. By the way, heads up, <laughs> uh, the giant robots where we point people at this podcast is actually coming out tomorrow. Oh, okay. All right. That's news. <laughs> that yes, yeah, surprise. Um, so that was news to me too. Uh, that's not the normal giant robots publishing schedule, but they wanted to get one, one out because WWDC is next week. And so they want to do like a special something or other during that week. So anyway, Tom gave me a heads up. And so you and I have to pick some intro music uh, or could pick some intro music and talk about some editing stuff and uh, get this thing into iTunes basically today. All right. <laughs> Surprise. Cool. <laughs> Podcast Motor, who's doing the production and editing for the podcast, uh, knows about this. So they're sort of on on board. They're ready to go. But you and I have a little bit of work to do. We do. Yeah. Cool. Also, I think uh, it's not a done deal yet, but it looks like I, if I had to guess, I'm going to probably in the next week close my first uh, part-time chief revenue officer engagement. Someone I am friendly with and have been talking to uh, was interested and we chatted and chatted and it looks like we're going to do it. Cool. So can you can you disclose any details about it? Or is it kind of? Under- I don't want to. I will. Um, once once it's it's a go, I will. Okay. Uh, I, I do have permission to talk about it, um, mm-hmm. at least in general terms. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not going to say names now because I don't think it would make sense if it's not set. Sure. sure. But soon. Cool. 
that's awesome. I'm in this position of like, do I need, I guess I need to come up with some sort of signable statement of work slash contract slash something or other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was watching um, Mike Montero's Fuck You Pay Me talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you familiar okay. with this? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, so he, uh, it's about basically uh, doing work as like an independent creative professional and uh, how you probably need lawyers to make you contracts because you need things to say what you're going to do and what happens if they don't pay or if you don't do what you say and things like that. And I trust this person that I'm working with, but I think that's like kind of like a classic mistake is to just assume that because someone seems like a good and trustworthy person that it's uh, okay and that you don't need a contract. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I wouldn't go too overboard on like paying lawyers a bunch of money to generate contracts or whatever. I wonder if there was like some open source stuff out there maybe of like a contract. But we kind of went through this through like business sales and stuff where like there there are aspects of contract negotiation where we're like, do we really want to push this point at all? Because we we were building trust with the people who, you know, we were doing this deal with and like we felt pretty confident. But then it was like the advice from our broker and our lawyer was like, look, you put these things in place. And you never expect to need them to happen. But, you know, in the off chance that, you know, management completely changes and now you have different bosses or, you know, the board decides to make some change contrary to what the people you've been working with want to happen, then you could end up in a situation where you need to fall back on your contracts. So I think it's always good to have like a minimum level of legal rigor, I guess, in place. But um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't drop a bunch of cash or or like go too crazy on it. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. We're not talking huge money, so it's like it wouldn't be worth paying uh, a law firm a huge amount to like drop a master services agreement. I think at this point, so yeah, yeah. Although I imagine people will tell me horror stories about how I'm wrong, which could be true. I want to just believe that like we can just operate on like trust and like gut feel and like not worry about it. That's like in my that's my nature where it's like yeah, like I said I'm gonna do X and you said you're gonna pay Y, so like we're good. Like what else do we need to do? Right. We shook hands over Skype and let's go. <laughs> yeah. If you talk to someone who's been consulting for like 20 years, they're going to have like lots of horror stories. But yeah, I think um, it takes a while to build up those types of stories. Yeah. So, so that, that was that's like a not a win yet, but it, uh, it feels like a promising forward motion on that. Which very is nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. Like you'd emailed your list asking for feedback about various things you were going to do. And, and that was one of that was one of the options, right? It was the chief revenue officer. It um, was. Yeah for hire. Did you get good feedback in general from your from folks about that? Or did this just, just kind of arise from you talking to your network or um, for the CRO thing in particular? Yeah. So this is someone I reached out to. I read a blog post of his and was like, hey, this person seems interesting and does sort of similar work to what I was doing at ThoughtBot. And so I reached out. I was like, hey, how do we not know each other yet? And he was like, I don't know. Let's let's chat. And so it was like an existing relationship, which makes sense. I imagine that's where most of people's like initial consulting engagements come from. People they're friendly with already. It's also nice because he knows my background, but he also know like I've been very upfront with like, hey, like I'm, I'm improvising this to some extent. Like I've done this work for uh, like Thoughtbot. I've done these things a bunch of times, uh, and I, I think I have a lot of not, like domain knowledge, but I, I'm new to doing this for other people. I, I just straight up said that, and it's uh, it's nice to just be upfront with that. So he's his expectations are set correctly. Sure. How did you go about figuring out how to price your service? Was it? <laughs> I talked to Patrick McKenzie. Okay. And I was like, hey, I want to do this thing. And he's like, yeah, that sounds, you should do that thing. And I was like, how much would you charge? And he was like, this much. And I was like, I'll take a little bit off that and do that. Yeah, nice. He's, he's a good one to consult with on that. 
I realize now I was asking you a meta question about how you're going to price your pricing service. <laughs> yes, very meta. Um, I should probably have a better answer than that, but that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. this actually is a reasonable pricing strategy, which is like I talk to the person and I have a sense of like what I can do and still give them a really good ROI given where their revenue is. And so I want to make sure that I get paid well, but also they're like, wow, that was great. Let's do more. Or like, let's say great things about Ben because he killed it for us. Right. And so honestly, like I'm thinking of this first thing as like the testimonial is like five times as important as the money. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Social proof is big with consulting, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Totally. I kind of started a little bit on the lower end. I'll talk about the numbers. If this, if this happens, I'm, I'm happy to share what I'm charging. The, the price is a little less important to me right now, but over time I would expect to walk it up where it's like, uh, I have more people who said good things about me and I'm doing a good job at this and Hey, it's working. And I can maybe move up market a little bit, work with slightly larger clients and just kind of keep rationing up the price until people laugh at me when I say the number. Right. Yeah, I would say like, especially a service like this, where what the amount of effort you're putting in is directly related to the ROI they're getting. Like if they if you can get a 10% lift in revenue or something, then it's going to be much more valuable to a company that's doing 100,000 MRR than someone who's doing 10,000 MRR. Your pricing can scale with the size of the clients that you're um, helping out to. Exactly. Yeah, yep. that's cool. At the end of the day, I should be able to like calculate ROI to three decimal places um, and just be like, here you go. Do you want more of this thing that I give you this ROI on? Uh, it's just that's it's awesome. Or like, like we can have a number at the end and be like, Ben did this much. That's satisfying to me. Yeah. Pricing is a funny thing. We We had a discussion early discussion about pricing models and stuff and how what direction we could potentially take drip in over the next you know months and years when we started looking at doing like an analysis of the competitors that drip has and and their how their pricing models have evolved over time it's pretty crazy to see like most of them started out similar to what we are where it's just like pricing kind of scales linearly with the number of subscribers you have but more and more we've seen like companies move towards kind of bundling strategies where it's like um you know it scales with with the number of subscribers and then there's also different packages depending on what you're doing so there's like there's tiers for different bundles and then each of those tiers scales up with your number of subscribers so it's like two dimensions of pricing obviously probably the reason for doing that is that um you're trying to extract as much revenue as you can from the people who are getting the most value right so like a, a large enterprise company is going to be, you know, in a different range of of ROI. So you could afford to or you could justify charging them more than a small you know, blogger or startup or something like that. The way to get that value equation to balance out is by doing some like fancy bundling and like including different integrations at different higher tiers. And, and so it's just interesting to see how many different directions you can take pricing and my biggest concern is always how can we how can we do this maximize revenue without making our pricing so confusing that it's like a deterrent for people who are wanting to sign up when they're looking like what is this going to cost me um i remember when when intercom changed up their pricing when they went from like three simple tiers into like we have four different products and you can mix and match them and depending on you know the combination of things you choose, we will generate a price for you. And I remember looking at that and being like, Ugh, I'm not so sure that's, I'm not so sure that's good. I mean, maybe it works for their business. I'm not, you know, I don't have internal knowledge, but it, from an outside perspective, it seemed uh, a little convoluted. So agreed. And I, I talked to a lot of people that were confused by the pricing change. And maybe they were just early. Cause I see like a lot of people doing that now. 
they might have just been one of the first to to step into that realm but uh, yeah yeah like you said it's hard to know from the outside how that how that turned out for them like yeah. they might be printing money so yep exactly <laughs> it's hard to see but yeah that like when you were saying like that two-dimensional price structure that just like intuitively to me just felt like eh, that sounds kind of hard to understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or to explain so it'll be interesting to see what how this conversation evolves at drip and we might end up with some different bundles or whatever but it, i think it just kind of depends on the overall vision too of where do we want to take the product and what markets do we want to enter so it's kind of a part of a broader conversation you know which it, as it should be but um yeah mm-hmm. what markets do you want to enter Oh, gosh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Lucrative ones? Lucrative ones, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Drip is such a general purpose tool. It's like potentially would not take too much effort to make this a really world-class tool for a specific niche that we're not really dominating yet. So, you know, the question is, should we be doing that? How much effort, you know, is it going to take a lot of engineering effort to do it? Or is it just a matter of like positioning and marketing? So many opportunities. And it's just figuring out which ones to do is, I guess that's where the... You get paid the big bucks, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how's the free plan working out, by the way, Andre? Uh, it's working well. Like we we have a lot of um, a lot more trials than we used to now. It's kind of weird. You call them trials, but they're really like the free plan is just an extended trial, right? It's essentially what it is. Um, but yeah, the the pipeline is is very full. Um, last I checked, we're converting those at a at a pretty healthy rate into into paid customers. So. Yeah, I think the free plan is is working out well. It's been a it's been a support burden, as you'd expect. I mean, that's that's one of the things that makes free plans very difficult to bootstrap because I think we've had to scale up maybe like five x our support staff just to support um, the volume. So to how many? At, um, I think we have maybe ten. Um, oh my god, ten, 10 full time people just doing drip support? Yeah, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And we we went for the longest time with one <laughs> yeah. like pre-acquisition, you know. That's amazing. So you're getting like crazy amounts of support stuff inbound. We are. We are. And that's priority number one is to figure out how to scale this. And I think there's some stuff. I, I don't know if I can talk about it quite yet publicly, but um, there's some ideas floating around about, about how to do this. So I can probably gotcha. talk about it soon. Okay, yeah. cool. Huh. So there's like roughly 400 hours of support requirements per week yeah it's pretty crazy i mean if you think about it drip is a pretty complex product and and at the free plan level it's a lot of people just getting started who they're looking for education in general and then they're also looking about how to specifically use the tool that's going to be a big component i think of of bringing drip to the masses is making sure our our education story is really tight um getting getting the education to the people at the time that they need it and you could do a lot of, I mean, I think we're going to utilize drip for this in a lot of ways, um, you know, with workflows and tagging and, you know, figuring out just the standard stuff you do um, with the marketing automation platform. So it'll be a good use for it. It's, it's really interesting just to watch the sort of meta thing happening where um, I feel like one of the early pitches for drip was like, it's the power of Infusionsoft, but it's simple and easy. And like the product just keeps getting more and more capable, which is like inherently increases the complexity. Even if you do a good job uh, with UI and UX, which you do, uh, it's just like over time, your education burden grows and grows. And it's like, oh, God, make sure make sure no one drips us later. Right. Yeah. I mean, we already see it, it happens occasionally. Some competitor comes in. I, I haven't seen someone's marketing directly targeted at us quite like like we have targeted some of our 
really large competitors, you know, but I'm sure the day will come when someone's like all the power of drip, but super simple. You know? Right. And you're like, damn you. <laughs> so just random piece of news. Somebody uh, reached out to me after seeing that I was um, thinking about doing the part-time CRO work and said, hey, uh, I have a domain you might want. It's uh, pricingsass.com and I'll give it to you. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, I do want it. So thank you, Jan, for that. Uh, that was super, super cool. That's just reaffirming my uh, experience of people being nice to me on the internet. It just keeps <laughs> happening. I just saw that um, Adam Wathen from the uh, Full Stack Radio podcast, uh, he said he had used to own his own name.com, adamwathen.com or whatever, and then he let it go like five years ago, and then someone squatted on it, and I think he just had to buy it back for like $1,000 or something. <laughs> like, he didn't negotiate with them. So this is like the complete opposite. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's much nicer. Yeah. He's a great guy. I'm actually talking to him later today. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we, we hung out at MicroConf and uh, became friendly, and so we're, we're chatting a little bit. Yeah, cool. I, I stumbled across someone on the internet that mm-hmm. I didn't know, but now I have like a man crush on, basically. His name is Julian Shapiro, and he owns Julian.com, speaking of owning your name. Oh, geez. It's pretty, wow. pretty legit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he makes incredibly in-depth, well-researched handbooks. It's like, first of all, like his site is beautifully designed. Uh, and like he just released the Startup Growth Handbook. He basically wrote a book and then put it all online for free. But it's like just the design is beautiful and the content is really concise. And like he does like a nice job like pulling out key insights and like good headlines. So it's skimmable and it's just he even has this little like um, expand collapse thing that he does where it's like, okay, here's the whole page. And then if you're interested in this particular chunk of an idea, it's sort of optional ish. So if you want, you can expand it as you're reading. But otherwise, it's it's collapsed by default. Nice. It's like a choose your adventure kind of. Yeah, it's an it's book. an optional. He says hit expand to read this optional section. That's cool. Yeah, it's like it's like TLDR kind of baked into the uh, <laughs> baked into the content. Right. Exactly. He's like, I know your attention span short, so I'm going to get to the point, and then if there's things where I want to elaborate some more, I'll just um, let you opt into that. Yeah. Ooh, that's cool. So you, you're taking some inspiration from this potentially for your uh, some of your educational content. That uh, yes, definitely. It's, so it's funny, I was talking actually to Adam, Adam, um, uh, who you mentioned earlier, and we were talking about um, how everyone tends to write blog posts, and now there's this push towards re- creating things that the people are calling content hubs, where it's like you pick a topic and you write a bunch of things on that topic and you link them together. And then Adam says, or as it was used to be called, a fucking website. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny how we kind of reinvent the same concepts and give them shiny oh, new yeah. names? <laughs> oh, yeah. Over and over. And what um, if you could like do this hyperlink thing where you right, like... If only there was some sort of way to structure the content and lay it out to like connect it to each other. Yeah. Like hypertext in a markup language. Sure. But we're going to need a lot of JavaScript to make sure we can <laughs> r- route the request to the Lots right fragment. Lots of JavaScript. And break URLs forever. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I saw this and I was like, this is amazing. And his blog is good. Just just solid stuff. So it's worth checking out. Thought I would pimp it a little bit. Yeah, that's cool. How did you find it? Uh, somebody, I think it was actually uh, Alex McCall uh, was like, hey, check out this startup growth thing. Because Julian runs a like growth agency, it seems like. And I believe Clearbit that Alex McCaw founded has been a client 
So I assume that's where that connection came from. Last things on my notes. <laughs> Memorial Day was an interesting experience uh, because it was like, uh, hey, it's a vacation day. But like, who says it's a vacation day? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, uh, I could go to work or I could not. Like, this is all up to me. It's like funny how like that changed all of a sudden. Yeah, suddenly it's like you're taking a day off from your own stuff. So it's like it's only affecting you if you take a day off. <laughs> right. So I, I did end up like not working on Monday, but it was just like it was this funny thing where, yeah, I thought that was reasonable. And then it was like, huh, no one's good. I could I could I mean, every day I could just do this if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no, nothing makes a vacation day anymore. It's just like, ah, today vacation day. Go. Right, it's really become an arbitra arbitrary concept. But um, yeah, I think it is good to build those habits of taking those vacation days. So, you know, props to you for actually doing it and resisting the temptation to maybe work. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, I'm yeah. so brave. <laughs> that one was pretty easy. The harder thing has been shutting down in the evening. Like leaving at work is like, all right, done with work for the day. Definitely not going to do any more work. Uh, leaving my own stuff is like, I'm still thinking about it. And it's like, I could just walk over to that same computer and do more of it. Uh, and it's hard not to, but I, I think it's actually important for me to step away on a, like a regular basis and do that away from keyboard time. Yep, for sure. Because it's where you synthesize your ideas, right? Like you're going to, well, we talk about this a lot, but like the doing the dishes time, the shower, like trance in hot water time, like whatever. That's where like cool ideas are synthesized, I think. So, or even getting lots of sleep. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So that's all. That's all I got. Nice. Well, that's a good yeah. healthy update. Yeah. Well, thanks. What's new with you? I spent my um, Memorial weekend playing around with Elixir. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw that. I can't, um, <laughs> tell me more. Tell me everything. Oh, man. This feels like this feels like when I was first learning Rails, um, where it's just kind of kind of blowing my mind all the time. And it's really fun. You know, building like a, a, a SaaS app, a, a pretty large code base at this point that Drip is, um, I've like seen all the ways that a framework can break down in ways that I wish that, you know, maybe Rails did things a little differently to make my life easier in, and well, the whole team's lives easier maintaining this code base, right? There's some definitely some standouts from uh, the Phoenix framework, which is the Rails equivalent in Elixir land, and thought I might might touch on a few of those points uh, if we want if we want to get a little technical so you familiar with with ecto at all the kind of the orm from phoenix uh, you've said all the things i know about ecto okay so here's how it's different it basically i think it follows technically more like the data mapper pattern but i'm not really i'm not really up to speed on all the intricacies of like orm design patterns but um what like, and you started a startup without knowing that i know right Mind-blowing. <laughs> you, you're probably not going to pass your Google interview. Probably not. <laughs> it's O of N of 2. <laughs> Ecto is an ORM, so it helps you make database queries, and it provides a like a, a DSL, domain-specific language, for constructing these queries, right? But uh, Active Record kind of works where you just have this, this object, and you set attributes on it and then you call a save method and it persists things and it figures out what has changed and what hasn't changed and and figures out how to store it in the database so it's really active record in rails arguably is really good for simple crud type operations but i've seen how this breaks down when um, you know ruby allows mutability so you can take some some hash that's stored in a column or something and you can mutate some data inside of it and then getting active record to know that that has mutated is often like 
really painful and can lead to inconsistencies or just like you need to do your own dirty tracking or whatever. So one of the things I really love about Ecto is that they specifically separate the concept of like building up a set of changes and then actually persisting those to the database. Like they're two separate constructs altogether. So like the first thing you learn when you're getting into Ecto is that you're going to build up these change set structures, data structures. I'm, I'm resisting calling them objects because Elixir is functional, right? But so you build up this, this change set and um, that represents all the changes that you intend to make. And so, for example, if you, if you have some data coming in from a form and you need to save that to the database, you probably need to do some, run some validations on it. You need to potentially do some mutation. Like if you're taking a user registration information and you want to take a password and hash it before saving it to the database. So you can think of all these mutations that occur to the data before it goes into the database. So instead of like, you know, trying to set these on an, on an object and using like callbacks or something to make these mutations, you just build up a change set and you pass this data structure from function to function. And, you know, they run validations and maybe they stick some, some errors into an, into an errors array or mutate data in some way. And then at the end, you have this thing that you can pass to Ecto and say, all right, I want to persist this to the database. And then it just figures out exactly what queries to run. Right. So it makes one, it makes testing really, really fast in order to test like this form data comes in and it needs to be mutated in this way. I don't actually have to do a persistence call to the database. Right. So I can just make very specific unit tests around this change set that's being made. And then you just assume that like, um, you know, you don't oftentimes don't actually need to test that the persistence happens in the right way because, you know, that's tested at the library level. That has been really fun. <laughs> it sounds uh, like it has decomplected those things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's made it like just just getting in and like saying, I want to take some data and store it in the database. It, it has added like a few extra mental steps, at least like constructing it is like, okay, I want to take this repository, uh, which is which represents the database. And then I want to like construct this change set and pass this to the repository. So it's like, it's a little bit backwards if you're used to like an object oriented world. But I feel like it scales so much better than kind of the active record model when you're dealing with complex data. And you mean so, scaling in the sense of like getting your head around it. Yeah. And, and dealing with like complex cases where like, okay, in this specific action, I only want to mutate a few columns or I need to do like this special data mutation before sticking it in the database. And to do that now, I can just construct a change set instead of like manipulating active record callbacks or writing a bunch of, you know, fancy wrappers around active record just to just to make these mutations happen so i like that there's like there's like a first class citizen that represents the change that's going to happen as opposed to that being stored in the mutable state of an object exactly yeah that's cool yep i will also give like some challenges that i encountered working with elixir uh one of them is that there's i don't know if there's the concept of like a keyword argument for for functions so there's a lot of positional arguments going on and some functions have like five arguments or optionally like three or four. There's like, that's basically the way, the way method signatures work in Elixir is like, um, you know, it chooses the definition of the function that matches the, the shape of the arguments that you pass to it. So it's really powerful. Like the pattern matching stuff is, is a really interesting way to architect things, but it also means that I'm like constantly having to look up like, wait, what, what order did the arguments go in? And it feels like a step back from like 
Ruby moving in the direction of everything's keyword arguments and it doesn't matter what order you put them in because you're, you're being very explicit about, you know, what keys the arguments map to. So, yeah, it is a weird bit of coupling to opt into, although I guess the, the thing you get out is probably the pattern matching bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Do you have a test project you've been working on? I do. Yeah, it's just like a it's just like a little a little project and I I started by implementing user registration for it and I actually had it was an interesting learning experience like I feel like I hit an edge of the framework um for this first task that I was doing <laughs> where like I wanted to and I wanted to do this in the in the most correct way since I'm learning a new framework but it's like it involved inserting a user and then an account that's associated with that user and I wanted to wrap that in a transaction so that you, you know, like insert the user and the account. But if user insertion fails for whatever reason, then make sure to roll back the database transaction. Doing that was actually not super straightforward. I'm, I'm planning to maybe write up a blog post just kind of like outlining how I did it, how I accomplished it with some tests. There's definitely a way to do it, but it's it's like you have to use this thing called a like a ecto multi and it like pipelines multiple change sets together. So it's just like not super straightforward. How are you learning this thing? Like how what's your process look like? Yeah, so I I originally started diving in. I went on the Elixir language website and kind of went through the whole getting started guide just to get familiar with the language. I picked up some some important highlights from that, but I definitely didn't absorb all the information at first pass because there's there's some elements of the language that are very quite different from an object-oriented language and it just didn't all sink in. But I felt like it was an important step to go through and at least familiarize myself with a lot of the native language constructs. But I didn't get super deep into that. I just kind of went through the, the getting started guide. Then I resisted the, I resisted the temptation to just like download Phoenix and start like trying to hack together a project. So I thought, okay, I think I need a little bit more foundation. So I um, I bought a copy of Programming Phoenix, um, which is like the the definitive guide from Chris McCord and Jose Valim, like the creators of the framework and the language, both kind of co-authored this book. So I'm like, probably a pretty good idea. <laughs> I heard, I think it was Derek Pryor, perhaps, on a podcast talking about going through this book as well when he was like first learning the language. So so that was good. I, I forced myself to go front to back and I built, I actually built the little test project from the book. I often don't do that. <laughs> you know, I like get a little impatient. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll skim, skim, skim. But um, I felt like actually like forcing my fingers to type the keystrokes and get familiar with like piping functions together and all the, the, the new concepts. I felt that was important enough to just force myself to do it. And I took, took me about two weeks to get through the whole book because I was just spending an hour here or there. And I think that was, I think it was really good. I mean, it even took, it even took you, you through some of the more advanced concepts like OTP and like process supervision trees in, Elix, in uh, Erlang and some things that like, I probably won't need it right away, but if I were to build something substantial in this language, like eventually I would run into that. So it was, it was nice to get an introduction to it at least. And then from there, I started, yeah, building my own little toy project. So I've heard Elixir described or Phoenix described as like internally at ThoughtBot. It's just like a better Rails. It's like fairly easy to pick up, but like smooths a lot of the rough edges of Rails because it was basically a rewrite. Like Jose Valim was on the core team of Rails. And so he knows Rails through and through. And then was like, hey, I'm going to make my own web framework. It's going to be a lot like Rails, but mm -hmm. I have a chance to sort of fix some wrongs in my mind. Yeah, like Erlang is an elixir, then by by default, are kind of like an inherently more efficient language for 
certain tasks, right? It's like inherently a bit more efficient than than Ruby, and then let's let's not make the same mistakes that were made with Rails. You know, and I think to to roll back and like fix some of the inherent performance um, difficulties with Rails and like the way Act, Active Record Library is architected, like you just couldn't do that now because legacy support. You know, so um, yeah. So are you um, excited at the prospect of possibly doing some Elixir at for Drip, like some sort of service in Elixir or something? Maybe, yeah. We actually just closed a hire on a on a scaling architect, that position that we've been trying to to fill for a while, and he is also in love with Elixir at this point. So I, th- I don't know. I think it's a possibility that we might end up with some in, in the pipeline. We're not like rushing into microservices or anything like that, but but as we rearchitect certain parts, which is kind of in the pipeline, um, who knows. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more if you do. Yeah, totally. Anything else up with you? Uh, I think that's it for my update for this week. Yeah. Okay. Well, as always, it's good talking to you. You too, man. It's nice to see you uh, when I'm in a better mood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to see you uh, all cheerful today. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm glad it could be a better company. Yep. (laughs) I still don't know where the show notes for this this are going to live. Yeah, we figured out a sign off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do know that today's episode was produced and edited by Podcast Motor. Yes. So mm-hmm. shout out to them for helping us out. I guess that's it. I'll see you next time. All right. Cool, man. Talk soon. See you then. Bye bye.